Thank you. Esther's story is a real page turner. Whoever put this story together from the human perspective really knew what they were doing. There's suspense there, it's a thriller, there's political intrigue, there's all sorts of things going on right here in this story. And no wonder, because it's so well documented from outside the Bible as well as from inside, that the Nazis hated this. And during the Second World War, they were determined that Jews should never read this story in public. They didn't win in doing that, but they were trying to do that because it was about a Holocaust. And the fact is, the Jews won that Holocaust. It was a failure against them. And now, today, in the month of March, they celebrate Purim for one day. They have some wonderful cakes, and they put up the bunting, and they go to the synagogue, and they read all the way through the story. And they do more than that. They actually enter into it so that when Haman's name is mentioned, they will boo. And when Mordecai's name is mentioned, the Jew, then they will hooray and they will cheer. Now, we could echo that just for a little moment, couldn't we, and have a go at doing that. And by the way, those of you who are watching and listening to me online, with the new technology, you understand I can see and hear you as well? <laughs> of course not, but let's see what we can do just for a few moments, shall we? Haman. <laughs> Mordecai. <laughs> that wasn't bad at all, but we're not going to do it again, and I'll tell you why because the name of Haman is mentioned 51 times in this book. And if we were to spend time doing lots of booze like that, I wouldn't have any time left to say the things that I want to say. <laughs> the setting is Persia, which is modern-day Iran. Buddha is dying in India, and Confucius is dying in China. And we're particularly looking at chapters 3 and 4, but we're going to focus more upon the end of chapter 4 because there's a build-up to what is being said there. Haman has been honoured above anybody else in the whole empire by the king, but Mordecai, who is a civil servant, because he's by the gate, and that means he's involved in the justice system, he will not respect him and bow the knee. It wasn't that because he was Jewish you didn't do that. People like Daniel would do that, others would do that, just as a sign of respect. But he just, some, for some reason, didn't want to do that. And Haman notices. And in his pride and in his anger, he decides, I'm going to do something about all of that, and he will not just get rid of Mordecai, he will get rid of all Jews. He decides there needs to be a holocaust. Now, King Xerxes is the person who must sign the decree that cannot be revoked. It's a law of the Medes and the Persians. He needed a replacement queen because Vashti had not pleased him, and there'd been a competition. And in the beauty queen contest, Esther has won. And Esther, although people don't know it, 
she is Jewish in background, and she was an orphan and raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. And through her staff, he gets word to her, you've got to do something about this. And that brings us to chapter 4 and verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and, I will, and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. In 1986, Ronald Reagan was the President of America. His wife, Nancy, the First Lady, was heading up a campaign against drug addiction. And the slogan that they adopted was, Just Say No. And from the White House, they sent out hundreds and hundreds of instructors and teachers who would go to various towns and cities in the different states. And teenagers were gathered together in theatres and gymnastic places. And they would instruct them and try to help them to just say no. In New York, in a downtown area, 3,000 teenagers gathered together in a theatre. And the instructor said, I need one volunteer. Young lad came forward and swaggered up onto the platform. And then the instructor said to him, I want you to take all your clothes off. He said, I'm not doing that. He said, I have a direct line to the president and he is the most powerful man in all the world and I can phone him and I can get him to order you as the commander-in-chief to take all your clothes off. He said, I don't care who you talk to, I am not doing that. And then he took out a $20 bill and that was a lot more money back then than it is now. And he said, I will give you $20 if you will take your clothes off. And he said, I don't care if you give me 50, I'm not going to do that. So he looked at all these students that were there and he said to them, what should he do? And 2,999 voices chanted back, take your clothes off, get them off. And he said, I'm not doing that. And then turning to them all, the instructor said, now what has he done? He has said no to doing something stupid, taking his clothes off. 
He has said no to power. The most powerful man in all the world telling him and ordering him to do it. And he hasn't done it. He has said no to money, turning down $20. And he has said no to peer pressure. All of you telling him to do it. If you can say no in here, you can say no out there. Just say no to drugs. But it didn't work. And the reason why it didn't work and why they allowed that slogan to quietly drop to the ground and no longer being used was this. They came to realize that people respond so much more to a positive message, to a just say yes message, rather than to a no message. And do you see, that is the glory of the gospel. It's good news. Oh, it seems to be bad news as it starts out because it's saying you're out of touch with God. What's happening now is going to affect you throughout eternity. Unless something is done about that, you repent. You turn from self at the center of your life to receive Christ as your Savior and your Lord. But then it's so positive because it's saying yes to what Jesus came to achieve. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. It's saying yes, as Paul would put it, to every spiritual blessing because I've identified myself with Christ. It's saying yes to joy and peace in believing. Or as Peter would put it, his divine power has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, starting in the here and now. Or as James would put it, I can come near to God and God will come near to me. But that's the issue. Is it not true that there are many times when we know that in theory, but it doesn't seem to be working in the practical, fleshed-out, day-by-day life that we live? And we do seek to come near to him. Some of us would call it a quiet time that we have daily, a time of devotions with the Bible and in prayer, But we don't always sense that God is coming near to us. We're not about to give up our Christian faith, but we're enduring it rather than enjoying it. You know what I mean, don't you? Because it can happen in all of our experiences. A little boy was having a a bedtime story from the Bible told to him by his mum. And she told the story of Daniel and the lion's den, and the way in which he survived that situation. And by the way, do you realize he was in his 90s when that happened to him? He'd lived through two empires and three kingdoms. He was an old man, and he survived that desperate situation. And the little lad looked at his mum and said, Mummy, God was much more exciting back then than he is now, wasn't he? And we get that, don't we? By the way, do you realize when it comes to miracles and seeing miracles, most people in Bible days didn't see a miracle? Bible history is over 1,500 years. The miracles happened in three crops. They happened in the time of Moses as he was leading the people into the promised land. 
They happened in the time of Elijah and Elisha, and they happened in the time of Jesus and the apostles. But most people had to believe like perhaps we have to believe, without always seeing the miraculous intervention of God zapping us and changing us and situations around us. But it raises the question, why does God stay in the shadows? Well, think about it. Imagine what it would be like if every time you did that which was right before God, every time you obeyed him, instantly he zapped you with blessing. You would not have found a place here because there'd have been people waiting in line outside for the doors to open to get in here. To hear the word of God, to do what it says, to be instantly zapped with the blessing. Everybody would be manipulated, everybody would be coerced by God to do that which God wants. So God says, I don't want a relationship like that any more than you do. So I will not work that way. I will give you tasters of what God can do in the here and now, but the main reward will come in eternity, and in that way I am not forcing myself upon you, and you are free to make the right choices. But God knew that we would struggle with that way of doing things, and that is why he gave us the book of Esther. It's all about the providential involvement of God with us. And God's providence is different to the miraculous. In providence, God takes the natural and uses it supernaturally. In fact, he can even take bad things and such is his power, he can work them together for that which is good, even though they are not good in a fallen world like ours. Which is why Paul said, God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And the value of Esther to us today is this. It gives us a window on this truth of providence. It lets the light in on that truth so that if we get it, it's going to steady us like nothing else. It's going to give us a confidence, going to give us a security. Whatever is happening in our circumstances, whatever crisis might come in, whatever trauma, it helps us and steadies us if we can grasp it. This is the story of a stunningly beautiful young woman. No wonder she got chosen above others to be the queen. Her name, well, Esther is a pagan name. Her Jewish name was Hadassah, and therefore you could call her Myrtle, because that's what it basically means. And it has a particular flower, which is star-like. So you could call her Star. But she is not really the star of the book. God is the backstage choreographer. And it's no accident that she gets chosen to be the queen. And it's no accident that 
Mordecai heard about an assassination plot and gets word through to the king, so he survives. And it's no accident that Haman hates Mordecai and his like. And that Mordecai contacts the queen through her staff to explain what's going to happen and what she needs to do. And it's no accident that Esther invites Haman along with the king for a banquet so that she can say something about this. And it's no accident that she loses her nerve and invites the king and that nice man Haman back again for a second banquet. She loses her nerve, but it was a good thing because of other things that were happening, like the building of the gallows that Mordecai will die on and all the rest. And it's no accident that that night, of all nights, the king can't sleep. I don't know what you do when you can't sleep at night. Maybe you get up and walk around, maybe you get a glass of water, or maybe you listen to a Derek Stringer sermon. Don't answer that. But you do something or the other, I guess. Well, do you know what he had done? He had the books, the history records of his reign brought out. I mean, if there's anything guaranteed to send you to sleep. It's all those names and dates, isn't it? How boring can that get? And his eyes are beginning to close, and then suddenly he hears about a couple of characters called Big Thang and Tiresh who tried to assassinate him and how a man called Mordecai saved the day. What did we do? Did we honour Mordecai? Very important to do that. Keeping people on your side. And they checked the record. No, didn't do anything. Got to do something about that. Haman is coming in early that morning. Now we know what he's up to, don't we? We know he wants a document signed. And when he hears, oh, I want to honour somebody. Well, who else would he want to honour but me? Haman is thinking. It was a bit of a blow, don't you think, when he's told, go and honour Mordecai. And of course the gallows is built there and the second time round when the king says, now what's this all about? What is it, Queen Esther, that you really want through this invitation to a second banquet? And suddenly she stops being a Barbie doll. And she starts being something else. There's the toy company that produced the Barbie doll, also produced G.I. Joe, the soldier. And do you know, this is true, in one factory run, the voice boxes got confused. <laughs> and G.I. Joe was saying, I'm going to shop until I drop. <laughs> and Barbie was saying, Hit the ground, hard, hard, hard. <laughs> and she became much more a G.I. Joe than a Barbie clothes hanger and fashion icon that she was at that time. And a coincidence is when God chooses to do something anonymously and God's ways are behind the scenes, but he moves all the scenes that he is behind. But the big question is, how do we partner with him in his purposes in and through our lives? How would it happen in a positive way for Esther? How can that happen for us too in our circumstances today? 
Esther had a choice to stay silent or step up. God didn't need her and he doesn't need us. But it's always to our loss when we choose not to step up and step in line and to partner with what God wants to be in and through us. And from what happens and what Esther does at this time, particularly at the end of chapter 4, we see three steps that she took. Basic steps. But each one meant she was fulfilling the purpose of her existence. So at the end of her days, she would not need to look back with any regrets. I was just thinking earlier this morning about this. Through the years, I have been involved and have taken many, many funerals. And some of them have been particularly traumatic when it's a little baby in the, a shoebox size coffin, when it's a young child, when it's a suicide, when it's a murder. I have had to officiate at murders which have been national events. But usually within funerals, you like to have a tribute at some point, and that's understandable. And I got to thinking this morning, you know, when a baby is born, the baby is crying and everybody else is smiling and laughing. But when a person dies, is everybody weeping? And that one person is laughing and smiling because they're in the presence of God and they're hearing the well done because they've lived their life well-pleasing to God, fulfilling his purposes and plans through them. As we apply these three steps that Esther needed to apply, and as we keep doing that day by day, I tell you this, we can finish well. And no, we're not finished. There's so much more beyond. Here's the first thing. Affirm God is present. Now that's what Mordecai is wanting her to do. She's hidden the fact that she is Jewish and quite honestly that was understandable from a human perspective that she would do that. He's saying, now look, God is around in this situation. Moreover, you are in this position that you're in, not just because you're a pretty face, although you are that, not because you've got a great personality, who probably she definitely had that, but because God's got a purpose in this circumstance and this situation. Now affirm that fact. That's what he's saying. It wasn't nice. It wasn't, oh, isn't it wonderful? I know that God is with me. I'm going to go into a dangerous situation. He may not put his scepter out toward me, even though he's my husband, which will mean death for me. But, oh, I've got that wonderful inward feeling that God's with me in all of this because it's the right thing to do. No, it wasn't like that at all. And we don't feel God is with us, but believe me, he is. Because we live and move and have our being in God. That's what scripture says in the New Testament. If I move my hand that way, and I move my hand that way, do you know what I'm doing? 
I am moving my hand through God. Because where is God? Is God out there? Yes. But is God here? Yes. We live and move and have our being in God. God is a spirit. In Jesus, he has a body, still does. But he is a spirit. And he can be everywhere. And he is close to us. But your feelings don't necessarily register that. But then you see feelings go up and down like a yo-yo. If they didn't, it would just prove you haven't got any. Think that one through. But particularly reckon on the fact God is with you. I know that the writer wants us to understand this because of the way in which he presents this. There are people who will say to you, God's name is not mentioned in the book. And they are right if you read it in the English, but not if you read it in the Hebrew. And it's the rabbinical scholars who will make that clear to us, and indeed have, I can give you the references. And they will say, his name is there as Lord, in the Hebrew, in acrostic form. Forwards, when reflecting what a Jew is saying, backwards, when reflecting what a Gentile, a non-Jew is saying. To the four that they give, I would add one extra because it reads, I am, and that's a title that Jesus often used. Acrostics, which was a way of using the alphabet, was something that the Jewish teachers liked to use. We sometimes use it as well. You may have heard of, say, B-I-B-L-E, basic information before leaving earth. <laughs> and we understand things like that, or F-A-I-T-H, for faith, forsaking all I trust him. And the Jews were fond of doing that. There are seven psalms, including the longest psalm, Psalm 119, that are acrostics. There are acrostics in the book of Proverbs. The whole of the book of Lamentation is an acrostic. And here you have got them reflecting the fact that God is there. So we may be out of, he may be out of our sight, but he is not absent from the situation. He is still involved. There's been a popular song that I absolutely hate. We don't sing it in church, although I have heard it sung as a solo in church. Not here. From a distance. You know it? God is watching me from a distance. I hate that. Because God is not at a distance from us at all. What does the New Testament say? He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. If you know Greek, you'll know there are five negatives in the grammar there that makes for terrible theology, uh, for terrible English, but wonderful theology. I will never leave you, no, not, never, know how. That's the God that we actually have. So affirm God is present. The king's scepter may not be put out toward you, and you're not sure about that. The gallows have been built, and it looks as though it's the end. The edict has been established, the death to all Jews. But God's eternal purposes will always be fulfilled. Reckon upon that. 
wake up in the morning knowing that fact by faith. And then you're ready for the second step. Ask God in prayer. People read this and say, prayer is never mentioned in all the book, but oh, it is. Because fasting is mentioned, and for the Jews, fasting and prayer always went together like salt and pepper. There was a combination. When should we fast? As Christians, the answer is any time you like. Because there's no rule that says you must. Nothing like that legalistic at all, but it may be helpful. It was for Esther back then, and the very three reasons why she encouraged fasting for herself, her maids, as well as for other Jews, is the very same three reasons that we may find that prayer and fasting is good for us. One of those reasons was the burden was great. She was probably off of food anyway. Couldn't think of anything else but what she was going to do next, so she turns that in to prayer as she fasts. And maybe the second reason was it was a great task that she was being asked to do, just as in the Acts of the Apostles, as the established church leaders, they always did it through prayer and fasting before those people came through into those leadership roles. And she's got a great task. Furthermore, as Jesus said, if the bridegroom is with you, using that illustration, that's not the time to fast, that's the time to feast. So the opposite is true. If the heavenly bridegroom, you sense a distance between you and him, why not stop eating and use that time and the hunger pang to actually pray about that situation? And how should you do it? Actually, there's more in the Bible about how not to do it. Don't make a big show about it. That's what Jesus said. You know, the kind of thing, oh, you don't look well this morning. Are you all right? Oh, I've been fasting. Oh, what a spiritual person. <laughs> don't let it be like that. But notice Esther says, come together to fast. We show we are serious about things in corporate prayer. Not us all getting on our own in our bedroom and praying like fury to God, but being involved one with another. We show God how serious we are. And we don't pray to inform God of anything. He knows it all. He knows the 5.7 billion people on planet Earth. Nothing surprises him. But because he knows doesn't mean that we don't ask. There is a prayer that God will never answer. And that's the prayer we don't ask. And there may be many things that God wants to do in my life and in your life, but he is not doing it because we have not, because we ask not. Well, now, I'm sure that like me, you've understood that before. And so you have affirmed God, particularly in a time of crisis or difficult circumstance. You've affirmed, God, you're with me. And you've asked God to intervene, to move things around for the better. And wow, absolutely wonderful when that happens. But at other times, you follow through on all of this 
and it doesn't improve. Sometimes it might even get worse for you. Now that doesn't mean God is not involved, because he is. Reckon upon that. Tell him the situation. Lord, a gallows has been built. Lord, it looks like the end. I can't see any help in this situation at all. God never has a crisis. We do. But God never has a crisis. But tell him about your crisis. But follow through with one more thing. Act obediently toward God. Esther does. I will go to the king even though it is against the law and if I perish, I will perish. This was no small thing for her to be doing. We know from outside the Bible what kind of man her husband and king was. Pothias had five sons. He had given a huge sum of money to the campaign against Greece. And he'd given four of his sons. And he asked respectfully for permission to keep one son at home to look after him in his old age. And the king had him ordered to be cut in two parts and for a unit of soldiers to march through the middle of that final young son. That's the kind of man he was. And Esther had no guarantees, but Esther survived in that situation. And by the way, here's a prayer you might like to pray because I guarantee the answer. If you're a child of God, haven't had an answer to your prayer recently, you pray this, guarantee, 30 seconds, you'll get an answer. Lord, will you show me something in my life you do not like? I guarantee it. Now, he may come through saying, my child, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing between us. Doesn't mean we're perfect. means we're just as we should be at this point in time. On the other hand, he may put his finger upon something. You need to do this. You need to respond to my initiative in this way or that way. And as we become doers of God's word, we can expect God to do even more in his word. Success in life is not in the planning, but in the doing. It makes a difference saying yes to God. There are two significant days in our lives. The first, the day we were born, and the second, the day we know what we are born for. And if you are wondering, why am I in the position that I am in? Why am I in this job rather than another? Why am I not in this relationship? Why am I... And you can fill in the blank. Why, why, why? Really, the issue isn't why, it's what now. In what ways are we going to become responders to him? And as Paul put it, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord not for men. A day may come when circumstances change. And we know we need to do something different now. God will make that clear to us. It's his responsibility, not mine, to know. I must then act upon that. We don't have to. We get to.
And wasn't that true of Jesus? These basic steps were always true of him and more so. Do you know, he fulfilled 300 predictions of the Old Testament in his coming into this world. And he had a particular purpose, did he not? To come at that time and to do what he did. He was always aware of God, but there was a certain time when he needed to affirm God was there because he certainly didn't feel it. On the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was God forsaken so that we need not be God forsaken. He was becoming a substitute on our behalf, bearing sin in his body as I respond and receive him as Saviour and Lord. And remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was asking, and when he prayed, he would say, Father, always aware and always affirming that relationship. 165 times he refers to God as Father and encourages us as the children of God to be able to refer to him in the same way. And hearing what was God's will, he said, your will be done. And that wasn't resignation, Kesara, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. No, it was resolution to do the thing that God wanted him to do at that time, to go to the cross, and he acted on it. And the end result? Raised again, ascended by the power of the Holy Spirit, comes to indwell us, gives us a future and a definite hope. In fact, the picture of the New Testament to describe this, the last one of the Bible, is we join him in a banquet. That's guaranteed through all that he did. May we step in line with God's purposes. I tell you this, you will never regret it.